Hi there, and welcome to another Dishcast. This was supposed to be from Washington, D.C., but I got down there last week, and and I'm having my I'm having my condo repainted and have new floors put in, and I just couldn't live there. So I came all the way back to Provincetown, where I am now, this charming little ashtray of a town, and the, uh, the weather is beautiful, and I'm chilling out, and I am delighted to have as my guest today on the Dishcast, Ian Baruma who is an old friend. We go back many years. He's a historian and a journalist, and he's currently the Paul W. Williams Professor of Human Rights and Journalism at Bard College. He served as foreign editor of The Spectator and the editor briefly of the New York Review of Books. He's written many books, including Murder in Amsterdam, The Death of Theo van Gogh and the Limits of Tolerance, Theatre of Cruelty, and The Churchill Complex. But his new book is a really fun fascinating read, had me laughing out loud at times, is called The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. So we're going to talk about that and a lot of other things, I hope, in the next few minutes. And I just want to let you know that we have a pretty stellar lineup coming up. We have Martha Nussbaum coming to talk about animal rights. We have Matthew Crawford. We have David Brooks. And Pamela Paul of the New York Times. We also have Spencer Claven, the young aspiring reactionary who is making waves on the, 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 the new right. But none of them matches quite Ian's erudition, humor, and, and scholarship, as well as a beautiful writing style. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the Dishcast. It's a pleasure. Let's start off because you you have an extraordinary life, really, of many different influences and, and backgrounds. So tell me, where were you born and grew up, and, and what were your first first impressions of life? Well, I was born in The Hague, uh, in the Netherlands, and as soon as I was, I, uh, I can remember and, and could speak, it, it's, it was to me a place to get out of, which is always an advantage. It, I want to be born in the middle of Paris and think it's great because then the world comes to you. And so growing up in a place like The Hague, well, there's nothing wrong with The Hague. It's a very pretty town, but it was not where I want to spend my life. And my father was Dutch, son of a Mennonite minister. And my mother was from a very simulated British Jewish family full of actors and musicians. And my uncle was a film director and uh, so on. And so from very early on, I had a very the strong impression that my mother's family was much more glamorous than my father's, even though they were perfectly nice people. But that gave me the sense that there was always somewhere else that I needed to be. And I suppose the somewhere else for a long time was London, because that's where my mother was born. That's where my mother's family was from. And again, it's a great advantage, I think, to have this sense of the bright lights that you aspire to so that it gives you energy. So, and this is something that I suppose has marked me for life because as soon as you get into the bright lights and the big smoke, you think that there's an even better bright light and, and, and big smoke. And so I've been rather peripatetic and I've lived in, in London, in Hong Kong, in Tokyo, in Berlin a couple of times, and now in New York. I'm now a little bit too old to think that there is still an even brighter place on the, other, on the horizon. But uh, yes, it's given me a rich life, this permanent quest for glamour, <laughs> to come up to the glamorous image I had of my mother's family. So that's really my background. And I, I studied Chinese at university in the very early 1970s at a time that you couldn't really go to China. It was like studying the other side of the moon unless you were an official member of the sort of Friends of the Chinese People type group. First off, Ian, tell us why you chose, maybe I should ask you that after, but that's a, that's a strange thing. To, let's, let's get you from your childhood in The Hague to studying yeah. Chinese, because what okay. happened between those two things? Did you move? When did you go to, when did you move to England? I mean, that, for example. Well, so hold on, so let's go back I, to your, so, your, your Chinese thing. Let's, yeah. let's go well, back no, I, I, can, I, can, I can start there. So I grew up in The Hague, and I did finally make my escape when I was 19, I guess. And I went to London for a year to work in the library of the Courtels Institute, and to where I attended lectures given by Anthony Blunt. 
which was fascinating. And on art and, history, presumably, I mean, on art was... history, uh, he spoke very well, of course, about Poussin, but also about Picasso and Braque. And I didn't have a clue what else he'd been up to in his life. But, well, so um, for our for our listeners who are not aware that Anthony Blunt was a very high level spy for the Soviet Union for a very long time in the United States, while being at the apogee of the British establishment, teaching uh, actually very close to the royal family, right? He was keeper of the of the Queen's pictures. And so I did that for a year. And then I went back to Holland to Leiden University and didn't really know what to do. And I thought, why not do something exotic that might also be useful? Because, you know, the, the Asia was sort of in the air. People would sort of go backpacking to Kathmandu and, 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 and Bangkok and so on. And I'd known some Indian friends in London. And so... Th- this attracted me, and I thought, but I thought Sanskrit isn't all that useful, and maybe Chinese. And I like Chinese food. Not all that useful, Sanskrit in the twenty no. twenty first century. <laughs> I mean, no, it might so, have it might have a few, but uh, the Chinese I thought might might be interesting. Yeah, and so so I ended up doing classical Chinese and modern Chinese. But the thing is, Chinese students of Chinese then it was a very small group. We're divided between the sort of romantic Maoists. And people who wanted to spend the rest of their lives as scholars in, you know, Tang Dynasty poetry or Han Dynasty texts, I f- didn't fit in in either group. I was a hopeless misfit, and you couldn't go to China unless you were an official friend of the people. Nor did Mao, Mao's China attract me in the slightest. It seemed extre- extremely drab and, and, and boring. And then I saw modern Japanese theatre troupes in Amsterdam, and I, I saw Japanese films in Amsterdam and London and in Paris at the Cinematheque, and it seemed much more attractive. And there was one theatre troupe in particular called the Tenjo Sajiki, who put on extraordinary performances. Half the actors were naked, and there was sex, and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And I thought, if this is what Tokyo is like, I want to join the circus. And so I got a scholarship to go and study film at a film school in in Tokyo. And it wasn't much good, really, as a film school. The only interesting teacher was an old silent film director who'd actually worked with Chaplin in Hollywood and and called... He had a sentimental Ushihara was his name because he had a reputation for making weepies. (laughs) Uh, But otherwise, I I had a wonderful six years in Tokyo working with theatre groups. So just to backtrack, you you learned Chinese and then went to Japan. Yes. (laughs) That's not not the most logical logical progression. It's not entirely logical either. In those days, it's no longer true. But if you studied Chinese, you had to do Japanese as well. Not that the languages have anything in common, but a lot of the academic literature is in Japanese. And so I, I had a grounding in it. I see. And but it was much more exciting. So I had a I I had a six year period in which I could dabble in this and dabble in that and learn about life and was probably a thorough jerk half the time. But that's how you learn. And after Japan, I went to London and lived there for a bit. Then went to Hong Kong, where I lived for seven years. Worked for something called the Far Eastern Economic Review, and which allowed me to travel all over Asia. And then I went back to London again, and this is when I worked for The Spectator for a while, which, again, I can't claim that I really fitted in there any more than I did with the romantic Maoists and the scholars in Leiden. Was this when uh, it was edited by Alexander Chancellor? Is that, is no, that, no. I, I might have fitted in a bit better then. Yeah, I was no, going to say. Charles, it was Charles Moore. Oh, yeah, well, that's and, not exactly... And, and, and from ex- an, good well, fit. from an anthropological point of view, it was fascinating. right. Um, you got an insight but, into, the, into the Tory hierarchy, essentially. Yes, but in well, sort of, I had uh, insight as a voyeur, and I, I suppose that really is true of almost my entire life. I mean, that I've I've always been a voyeur, and I love to be sort of the fly on the wall and Ooh. inside, but not really inside, but just inside enough that you can observe things. And that was certainly my experience of The Spectator. And then, well, various episodes, but I ended up in the end in, in, in New York. What was the fascination with Asia for you? And that's a 14-year stretch you're talking about, maybe 14, 15 years that you were there, all told. Was there something about the East that kind of compelled you, or was it just sort of 
a, a curiosity that became even more curiosity? Well, I think the latter. I mean, the more you know, the more, of course, you, you want to know. But my attitude to, think, to, to my interests, I'm afraid, are not very intellectual. There has to be a strong sensual interest. And so, as I said, I like Chinese food. I found the whole sort of non-Western world rather sexy in many ways. And so that's the beginning. And, and you know, my exposure to Japanese theatre and film and so on simply accentuated that. And then, of course, the deeper you get into certain things, certain countries, certain cultures and so on, the more, you, the more interested you are. But I, but I did very much resist becoming an expert or an old hand. I could have made a very good living staying in Japan for the rest of my life explaining the Japanese to Western audiences, but that would have bored me stiff. So I always, after a year or about six years in, in Tokyo and seven years in Hong Kong, always decided, okay, now enough's enough, now I have to go back to the West, because otherwise you do become an old hand. And old handism is a great trap because you don't really learn. You're always talking to people who know less about the subject than you do. And this is the recipe for becoming a frightful old bull. Yes, or in my case, a hack. <laughs> Coming to America and telling the English. What's interesting about that way around, however, is that the English know so much more about America, that the, that the ways in which different national cultures were really kind of relatively sealed off from each other is no longer the case in the English-speaking world. I mean, at this point, if you write on the internet... Essentially, you're writing for the English-speaking world at this point. That those that the when I first came to America, there was a clear difference between here and there, and now no longer the case. What's always fascinated me, and I, this question that you find interesting, is that you know Japan and Britain, are two island countries, sort of rainy, cold northern hemisphere countries, with very distinct cultures and 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 histories. Do you think of them as, as similar in some ways or, or it, it, what are your reflections on those two countries? In some ways, I think, yes. And I think my, my interest in both is, is uh, there, there is a reason for it, which is that growing up in a, in a mixed family, parents coming from mixed cultures, different cultures and so on, you, you, you're always in betwixt and between, and which is an advantage in my eyes, but it but it it is a particular outlook on life that not everybody has. And I suppose I've been fascinated by countries that are insular for that very reason, because they're anything but in betwixt in between in many ways. And so that's that has a certain fascination. I mean I'm very attached to Britain because I know it very well. I'm not, by the way, I'm not so sure that, the, that the, the mutual comprehension between Britain and America, I think up to a point. Right. I mean, I think that if the average American reads Charles Moore's diary in The Spectator, they'd be a little nonplussed. <laughs> and, and if you ask the average English person to explain what the role is of the Constitution in the United States, they wouldn't have a clue either. So, yes, up to a point this is true, but there, is, there, there are still great differences. The big difference more recently is that Britain, of course, has become a nation of immigrants and Japan ferociously not. It, it, there's, there's, and that, that's an interesting wrinkle. Uh, the Japanese seem very intent upon retaining, even if it means that their country is going to have declining population, it's probably going to decline relatively in terms of wealth and power. They seem to put a premium on retaining uh, a sort of Japanese culture and society in a way that the English have brought in vast numbers, especially in the last two decades, vast numbers of people from around the world. Under the Tories, weirdly, even more cosmopolitan than before. I mean, half of Hong Kong, well, many, many Hong Kongers have, have, have come to England. How do, you, how do you account for that? Well, uh, I, I think that, well, f f first of all, this is, of course, an urban phenomenon, and many people in Britain resent it. But one shouldn't exaggerate the, the, the homogeneity of Japan either. I mean, in, in recent years, there have been vast numbers of Chinese who go to Japan, not all tourists. I mean, many of them stay there. Many, many Asians in the 
90s, there were a lot of Iranians, uh, so they did bring in guest workers, but in the same way that the Europeans did in the 60s and 70s, on the understanding that they would come to work. And, you know, once uh, they were done, they'd go back home. And But, of course, in many cases, that doesn't happen. So Japan is becoming, or at least the cities, are becoming much more mixed than mm. they were. And it's causing the same kind of frictions that it causes in other countries. But when you look at London, say, which now has 40% of its population foreign-born, that seems to be a, a different scale altogether than Tokyo. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, what's, I mean, and, and that's, you know, that is, that is a fast, and Britain's, it seems to me that that had some influence on the Brexit debate, the sense that that this was a sort of unspoken thing that, that was sort of resented by lots of people quietly. And it was never really aired. Why are we doing this? Or it was aired briefly in the 60s, and that was toxified by, by Enoch Powell's famous speech, which identified all restrictions to immigration as a sort of, uh, not wrongly, as built, rooted in some level of racism and xenophobia. Uh, but nonetheless, and of course, the weird, the weird paradox of this is that the Tories have become this party, which was representing those kind of interests, have come in, took Britain out of the European Union, and then massively increased immigration from the rest of the world under a new point system. So it's not you, you, you people can't automatically come from Poland or uh, Bulgaria or some other parts of, of the EU. Uh, so they can argue, and Boris Johnson argued this, we want the best talent from the entire world, but it certainly is a more cosmopolitan immigration policy than it was before. Yes, well, that is true. But of course, the the, the friction, the sort of thing that Enoch Powell um, was exploiting, the fear of immigrants, the fear of being swamped by foreigners, the fear of losing your identity and so on, this is not something that's very strongly felt in the, in the areas where most of the foreigners live. So London was very anti-Brexit. And I think, and this is, Britain isn't unique in this, this is true all over Europe, but, and even the United States, that a lot of the resentment that, that is expressed as anti-immigrant anti is rarely resentment against the so-called elites. And, it's the, and the same is true of the EU. The, the idea is that there are these elites, these fat cats, these these financiers, these uh, intellectuals and so on, and they're all shoving this cosmopolitan down our throats. And the, the, the Brexit vote and the Trump vote and any anti-immigrant vote in, in, in continental Europe too is rarely directed against their own, what are perceived as their own elites who think they're better than us and you know, trying to impose a way of life that we don't like, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's, it's less against foreigners themselves. And I think there's a history to that. If you look at, at, at English history, a lot of the Francophobia, the, the, the animosity towards France, is less against the French than it was against sort of foppish aristocracy with their Frenchified ways and their French food. And, and so... The reaction was of the sort of roast beef and old England yeoman and, and all that. And what we're seeing now is in some ways a, a variation of it. It's, it's a reaction to, 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 what, to a group of people whom people perceive to be lording it over them. And, but to take that, they, they were kind of lording it over them. I mean, in some ways, you think of Tony Blair sort of declaring in the late 90s, England's very uncool. We want to have a variety, more ethnic restaurants. We want to have a cool Britannia. We want to have all this new. And in fact, voluntarily agreed to have immigrants from other parts of the EU that were not as developed sooner than was necessary. Almost a kind of celebration of multiculturalism as the British way of life. Or even if you look at, I remember the London Olympics, that ceremony. It was, it was, it was not about old England as such. It was No, no, of course not. But the, the, there was a strange alliance, I think, from, from the, more or less since the 1960s in, in, in many European countries, including Britain. Uh, you, had, you had people on the, on the right who, not the kind of right, not the populist right we're seeing today, but the, the sort of conservative right, whose 
constituency was really business. And what was good for business and industry was, of course, importing cheap labour. And so the right, including, you know, both George W. Bush and George W. H. Bush and his son, both encouraged immigration because it was cheap labour. It was good for business. And, and, but they were allied in some ways to the sort of progressive left who, as you say, celebrated diversity and multiculturalism and, and, and you know, especially when it was non-Western cultures and, and, and so on and so forth. And so, yes, the, the people who in, in the provinces or in, in small, smaller towns who felt that they, they were suddenly being dragged into a world they didn't really recognize or like, blamed it on the elites, which could be both conservative and progressive. Yeah, which is why in some ways, you know, what happened with the Tory party is that the traditional elites were kind of chucked out, or at least they were very much confronted. People like Cameron, Osborne, although Johnson, of course, is, again, this, this, this complicated figure. In some ways, you could be maddened by him because he's absolutely a cosmopolitan member of the elite and was playing a role, really, playing a game in many ways. I remember, I don't know whether you remember the moment in the parliament when Boris stands up and declares he's against, he's for leaving, and Cameron is kind of staggered. They were all kind of aghast at this. And Cameron just points out very that day, you know, it's all about your political future. It has nothing to do with reality. You're just... You're just using this, so that may have added to the the. Well, the... yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson is, is 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 a complicated character, unlike almost anybody else. But of course, he also comes to a tradition that you know well, which is the sort of the Oxford Union tradition, where it's kind of chic to argue a case that you don't believe in for a second. Yes, and he was very good at that. I mean, yes. on the Brexit, apparently, when he was still writing a column for the Daily Telegraph, he wrote two pieces: one pro-Brexit and one anti, and. In his view, you know, one was rarely as good as the other, and he would uh, put his finger in the air and see which way it was blowing, and then plump. Yeah, I, I confess, I confess, when I was at the Union, I only ever took the side that I assumed was going to lose because it was more challenging and interesting to debate something that was kind of implausible. And, you know, that's, I mean, that yes, you can look down on that. On the other hand, it's a kind of liberal principle, isn't it? Put your, wrap yes, your head no, around no, I'm, your alternative argument. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing. And by the way, of course, it is one of the differences between British culture and America. I mean, in America, it's unthinkable because here you have to be authentic or at least make a good show of being authentic. And the Oxford Union principle it, it goes against that. Yes, it's not such a bad thing, but when it leads to people who have absolutely no principles at all and see everything as a game, and I think Boris Johnson is one of those people, and apparently always was. Uh, yep. That's disturbing. Yes, it is. Uh, there's a level of insouciance to him. I mean, one of the things that I found, you're in New York, that's why the sirens are going off outside. Let's wait till they're, till they're done, actually. Oh, they're nearly done. But you're kind of most interested, it seems to me, in complicated characters. Uh, yeah. in, in the notion that good people can do bad things and bad people can occasionally do good things. Yes. And the, what's fascinating really about human life is that moral complexity, which is not an American value anyway. As you say, authenticity, conviction, no flip-flops, that kind of view of politics or of life. It's just not one that's very congenial or interesting to you. Uh, no, not, not, certainly not, not interesting to me. Uh, but in American culture, there is room for that too. I mean, if, if you think of the sort of film noir of the 1930s and 40s and the anti-hero and even a figure like uh, FDR, who was, of course, a very patrician, almost aristocratic American, but he, the, the, there was a bit of that in him too. But yes, you're, you're quite right. As far as my, I'm concerned, I really am only interested in the complexity of characters, and I, I, would, I find heroes very boring, and out-and-out -out villains are perhaps a little bit more interesting, but ultimately not very interesting either. And, and it's it's the, it's the grey areas that are interesting because it's, to my mind, more human. 
and and I do hate moralizing. I, I find moral condemnation of people, whether it's in fiction or in non-fiction, very dull. And one result of, of writing, according to my principle of always trying to look for, for the gray areas, is, of course, that, that you get criticized for it. And this has haunted me all my writing life, really, that I've always had critics who say, why can't you be more indignant? So, you know, when I wrote a book about the way the Japanese and the Germans remember World War II called Wages of Guilt, you know, you write about Auschwitz. Why can't you show more anger? And so, as though showing anger and outrage is an interesting literary response. It's not. I mean, it it, it might make you feel good, and and some of the readers make some of your readers feel vicariously good because you know we're on the right side and so on. But it's it's boring because it doesn't. You don't learn anything from it. And I think to learn how human being, what makes human beings tick, you have to look at. At, at behavior very carefully without just condemning. I mean, and, and also certain things, it, it's a given that you, you, you morally condemn it. I mean, you, if you write about Hitler, you know, no, nobody's going to assume that you're writing it as a great fan. And it, you don't actually have to say that Hitler was a terrible man. In order to, but what you do have to do, I think, when you write about, and Hitler's a rather ex- extreme example, but if you write about a, ba- a person who's done very bad things, you want to understand them. And it doesn't mean to excuse them, but you want to understand them and what, what makes human beings behave in, in the way they do. And moral condemnation or expressing moral condemnation, I think, stands in the way often of understanding. That, I, I honestly couldn't agree more. It makes our current era, the last, say, 10 years or so, an era particularly not conducive to a sen- sensibility like yours. No. And of course, it. and you're interested in that. I mean, this is a perfect analogy to what happened to you at the New York Review of Books. You were interested in, as I understand it, the experience of someone who had done some terrible things, but was now mm-hmm. being treated completely as a pariah and a no person. And you were curious about what that mm-hmm. felt like. Yes. What are the what are the what are the mixture of emotions of 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 how you responded to these events, of how you respond to the way people are treating you to date? How honest can you be with where you screwed up? And how much do you have to sort of defend yourself in some some way? And and you you didn't even write. You just commissioned and edited a piece by yes. someone describing what it was like to be cancelled. And that yes. was enough to have you cancelled yes. by, by almost by your editor of the New York, New York. Maybe you could tell the story briefly. I don't want to go into this to great length. Because, well, yeah. But, but it just seems opposite to this point, right? You, it was a figure who, who, it was, of course, right at the beginning of the, well, maybe at the height of the Me Too movement. But um, this was a, he was a well-known Canadian um, radio media personality, a Canadian and a Canadian-Iranian. And he'd probably misbehaved in all kinds of ways. He might have assaulted women. He might, but I, 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 of course, I'm not a judge, so I can't know exactly what he did. But I, I assume that some of the things, some of the allegations are probably true. But when you commit a crime in a society, takes the rule of law seriously, and you're tried in a court then there is a clear, if, if found guilty, there's a clear punishment and it has a limit and so on and so forth. That's what, what, what the law is for. That's what courts are for. Now, this was a case of a trial and for whatever reason, he was found not guilty. Now, that doesn't mean he was a nice guy. It doesn't even mean he didn't do some of the things he, he was alleged to have done. But then begins another whole new punishment, a punishment, a social punishment of ostracism, of not being able to work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I was interested, yes, in what that experience was like, but I was also, what I wanted was to start a, a, a debate, really, on how we punish or how we deal with transgressors who are not found guilty necessarily by the law. And I think this is a, is a serious issue, the, 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 this issue of social punishment. But that's, of course, not the way it was received. And people thought I was giving a platform to somebody who had no right 
to to have his voice heard. And then I sort of was almost found guilty by association. Now, these ca cases, of course, are always more complicated, and I don't particularly want to go into that, but it, it, it always has something to do with the internal politics of the institution where this occurs. It had to do with, I suppose, a, a generational split and, and so on and so forth. But yes, you're, you're quite right. It was a perfect example of me trying not to moralize, but to discuss a, a character who, at the very least, had some very dark spots. We're, we, become, we seem uncomfortable with those truths of the immeasurable complexity of, of humans. And I mean, this is, brings us to your, your, actually your book. I was going to actually read a little part of the beginning because this is how you put it in the prologue of the book. On the face of it, the three main characters in this book have very little in common. Felix Kirsten was a plump bon vivant who became famous or notorious as the personal masseur of Heinrich Himmler, mass murderer and head of the SS. Himmler's fond nickname for him was the Magic Buddha. Now I'm going to have a hard time with him. Aizen Gyoro Dianju, or Jin Binhu, Jin Bihu, or Dong Zhen, Eastern Jewel, but best known by her Japanese name, Kawashima Yoshiko, was a cross-dressing <laughs> cross Manchu princess who spied for the J Japanese secret police in China. And then, sorry, these characters, I mean, honestly, I read this book and they're serious, this is a serious, this is a serious but they're, they're, the, the details of these stories are hilarious at times. Anyway, Friedrich or Frederick or Freak Weinreb was a Hasidic Jewish immigrant in Holland who took money from other Jews by pretending to save them from deportation to the death camps, but in fact ended up betraying some of them to the German police. So we have these three <laughs> On the face of it, reprehensible people. I, I just, I'm just fascinated by the idea of Heinrich Himmler on the massage table. Of course, what you point out in this book, the Nazis were all into this bullshit. They were, I'm sorry, not mm -hmm. bullshit. Massage, actually, there is a, there is, but, but they were often into these Oriental trends. These, these. No, no, I think, I think bullshit is the right word. <laughs> okay, well, I reserve that for something like Reiki, where they just sort of put place their hands near you, as if they're curing you of something. But anyway, and. And yet you find in their lives and these, the details of their lives in particular, enormous granularity and, and variety. And, and they have complex emotions. They're not simple traitors. They are they try and do good. They're, they're, they've done some bad things. And after the war, they just kind of gussy it up into something good. All the, the normal human illusions of reality that we c construct to make ourselves feel better about ourselves in the world, as well as a certain amount of lying, too, obviously. Well, a, a lot of lying. A lot of lying, but the I lying... Mean, the, uh, yeah, go on, tell all, me. all three are really sort of uh, suffer from the Munchausen syndrome. I mean, that they're, they've reinvented themselves as almost as fantasy characters. And a dictatorship and occupation is the perfect stage for such characters to emerge because there's no truth anymore. Officially, everything is propaganda. Even people who are in the resistance make up documents, make up fake names and so on. And these were people who saw their chance to play a role that in normal circumstances, in a more normal world, they could never have done. And, so, and the reason why there's a lot of comedy in it, even though what they did was not particularly funny, in fact, you know, there were a lot of victims involved, but there is comedy involved in any attempt by a human being to be something that they're really not. The aspiration to sort of make yourself into, into, into a fantasy is inherently, of course, comic. And, and I have no problem with injecting comedy into very serious and, and dark subjects. Some of my critics object to that, but... I certainly, uh, I, I, I take pleasure in it. And, uh, and, and so these, these three people were, were people who were very unsure about their identity to, to come to a subject that's you know, very much in the center of culture today. They were, all three of them were children of broken, em of collapsed empires who didn't really have a clear idea of national 
allegiance and, and had to sort of make themselves up. And, and one of the reasons I was interested in it, but aside from the fact that I found their stories extremely gripping, was that we live in such an age now where the president of the United States can be a fantasy figure. I mean, he's a Munchausen figure who makes everything up. And you mean, you were talking about the, the former, I mean, the former Trump, president? Yes, no, no, yeah. not, not, not decent old Joe Biden. Well, he, he actually well, has a few, yeah, he's, few he's, rambling fantasies about like his youth. Like every competition. But in a much more familiar, understandable way of yes. embellishing stories, whereas Trump yes. is just pure fiction at, at all yes. times. A fiction designed purely for the advancement of his own. Uh, that's he, right, and we live we live in an age where there's no consensus anymore about uh, even something as basic as, as that there is such a thing as truth. And again, there's an alliance, of course, between the far left and the far right. There, the, the, the far right believes in crazy conspiracies and that kind of thing, and and the, the and thinks that all everything that contradicts them is basically partisan, and that if it's in the New York Times, it can't be true. And that the progressive left, or certain elements of the progressive left, began, I, I think, in, in academe with French theory and that kind of thing. But take the view that there is no such thing as truth. Everything is a representation of relative power and gender and race and so on. And if you, if you give up on the notion that there is such a thing as truth, you get into a very dangerous area because that, that can be exploited uh, very maliciously by political forces who can impose a certain view of reality on large numbers of gullible people. Yes, I'm thinking in terms of the conspiratorial ideas about the deep state, which operates as some kind of uniform, entirely in agreement forces that are somehow d deliberately attempting to thwart the will of the American people. Not a new theme in American politics, actually. And no. it, the, the paranoid tradition, to, 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 to echo Hofstadter, is, is very deep and long in the United States. We can go back to the, you know, the Lavender Scare or, the, or the, 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 the communist plots that were the, the, the homosexuals in, in the State Department. Any number of elite cabals have been aired over the years. But they do seem to be in in the real ascendant now, combined with this notion that in fact America, even though you look around it and you live in it, you're so, it's suddenly being described as essentially a form of the KKK, that white supremacy is actually our reality, when we can look around ourselves and say, really? <laughs> you mean the white supremacy that we understood from the 1910s or 20s or the 1840s, it doesn't seem as if that's terribly relevant today. But but who but who can stand up to either of them in this current in this current? Well, world? it's very difficult because I think what what mitigated these things in the past is yes, you had all these crazy things swirling around in many countries, but in the United States in particular. But in a, in a, a system of two large political parties that that still determined the political future of this country, you still had a sort of a, a conservative in the true sense of the word, a conservative elite in both parties really in those famous smoke-filled rooms and so on, who made sure that absolutely crazy figures like Trump would never have emerged as the candidate. So there is, there is a lot to be said for having a kind of elite as a filter, just as you need an editorial, you need editors in a newspaper or a, or a television station who can, who can sift the nonsense from at least an attempt to get to the truth. And once trust in those kind of elites collapses, everything is up for grabs. And by the way, it, it, it drives me crazy that people use the word conservative to describe people like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. They're anything but conservative. <laughs> They're the opposite. I mean, yeah. if anything, Joe Biden is much more conservative than Donald Trump is. Oh, Absolutely. They are, in some ways, they're nihilists. They're, they're burn-it-all-down people at this point. There isn't a coherent argument for governing as such. There is a, there is, there is a, a very basically coherent argument for destruction of various institutions, for the destruction of certain norms, for the contempt for certain, even passing a budget on time, which you would think would be a 
talking about a conservative idea, that when people calling themselves conservatives say they're going to throw the entire country into default if they don't get their way on some tiny issue, you realize they're not conservative in the slightest no. sense. But where does that leave people like you and me, Ian, in this situation? I mean, you, you are in a particularly delicate one because in the, in the world of letters, this is also shockingly happened. You would think it that is, writers of all people would be the most resistant to this kind of Manichaean politicization. And yet writers have in many cases been pioneers for the suppression of other views, for the demonization of dissidents, for the ostracism of the politically or morally flawed what do you make of that shift in the role well, of writers? Well, it's not just—it's not just writers. It's also the people who, the, who, who make writing possible. It's also the, the publishers, the foundations, the museums, the, the universities. It's the whole infrastructure of of culture, which has always been relatively liberal, even even left. And the, I think that the great difference with other waves of paranoia that have swept across America in the past, take the Red Scare in the 1950s, that if you were a writer in a, major, in, a, in a university town or a major city in the United States in those days, your enemies were very identifiable. They were, they were the conservatives, they were the religious, they were the right, and so on. And your the publisher, FBI. your editor, or the FBI, your publisher, your editor, your university president, and so on, were basically on your side. Now it's our own side, as it were, that is a, has become a problem, because the 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 targets of the sort of the, the the moral judges in contemporary culture are not the far right, because they wouldn't listen to, to them anyway. I mean, if you're on the far right, you have no business with the Ford Foundation or the Museum of Modern Art or Bard College, where I teach. It's the liberals who are really the target. And yes, it is one of those periods in which liberals, in the not in the American sense of leftists necessarily, but the sort of free spirits, um, are under fire. But my only consolation is that this is a big country, and I have a certain sense that particularly amongst women and some black intellectuals, there is pushback. And one of your future guests, Pamela Paul, for example, has impressed me quite a bit because she's arguing against these things from a liberal point of view, as is somebody like John McWhorter. So I think there is some pushback. I also sense amongst my students who are all in the early 20s, there is much more willingness now to discuss a lot of these things reasonably without getting on their high horses about it than there was, even ten, than there was let's say, 10 years ago. Uh, a lot of young people are getting rather tired of being lectured to, condescended to, told what to think, and so on. So I think one... Th what, what's, what is happening a little bit in institutions, and you have to look at it in, in terms of institutions and not individual voices, is a bit like the 60s when second and third-rate academics, for example, who'd never really published anything of note, but they were very good at sitting on committees to make other, people feel, other people's lives miserable. It was their way of, gra of grabbing power. And in those days, in the name of... You know, Marxism, leftism, anti-Vietnam, or whatever it may have been, and now it's it's it, something similar. I think is taking place in our own time, in, inside publishing companies, inside universities, and and so on. So it's a it's a power struggle as much as anything else. But yes, it doesn't help to be an old-fashioned liberal. That's not a that's that's certainly, to put it mildly, a very unfa unfashionable point of view. It's interesting to think of the forces in these institutions that are opposing this sort of liberal vision are sometimes not even academics. They are administrators. Yes. They are, they are in, in corporations. They are not the bosses. They are the HR department. There are all, when you look at major universities in this country and you see the armies of DEI advisors that are now there, these people are not talented enough to actually have a job in academia, but they are resentful enough and powerful enough to determine who does. And 
there's this, you know, this, the great Nietzsche, Nietzsche word, ressentiment, is, is very much in the air, it feels to me, about this. And certainly the tall, the tall, the tall grasses are going to get cut down at some point. But you're right. At some point, there is and one of the themes of your work is this flight from boredom. There is nothing more boring than a monocausal explanation, for example, of inequality right. that yeah. bounds down to some people are evil and some people are good. It just it might have some rhetorical power upon first being described, but over time, it's so... It's so reductionist and so one-sided and so unsophisticated that yes. any intelligent person is going to be bored silly by Ibram Kendi after a while. Yes, but I think not. I mean, people are getting a bit bored with Ibram yeah. Kendi. I mean, I was reading a piece the other day that you know his his institute is not doing very well. It's collapsing, and they've, and they've had to 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 fire a lot of people and so on. I mean, it, of course, it's not very interesting, so it it won't last. I mean, some of it, it will depend a little bit on the election next year. That if Trump wins, of course, this kind of stuff is going to get worse. And the, the, to, to, to call it woke, which I don't like to do because it's it's become one of these terms that are terms of abuse that have become almost meaningless. But the, the woke world, of course, only concerns a very small section of American society or in any society. I mean, this, this only rarely concerns the urban intelligentsia. And the art world, most most people have nothing to do with it, are not interested in it, and so on. But it does feed feed resentment amongst those voters who have this idea that the elites are trying to cram a, a worldview down their throats, which they don't like. So it's in the end, it's very very bad for the for the liberal left. And I'm very pleased to see Joe Biden go uh, to the picket lines in, 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 the, in the motor industry, because I think that those are exactly the sort of people you actually need to vote Democrat to stop the right wing populism from taking over again. But, and so in that sense, the, the sort of the mood in the, in, in the urban intellectual and artistic world is, is a great um, hindrance, I think, to well, the Democrats and, and, and with a small D and a big D. And this, this phenomenon in which this stuff was happening anyway, that, that, that these ideas were definitely percolating. They had definitely established, got a foothold in most of the major universities. But the Trump administration and Trump's election seems to have galvanized this in an even more radical dimension. And then the 2020 Riots and the George Floyd moment seem to give it another huge burst of oxygen, All, both of which seem to, in some ways, legitimize a notion of a country run by a dictatorial white nationalist killing black people in the street. I mean, the, the crudest form of explanation. And I've, I've, I keep arguing that Trump, Trump helps the left enormously, although, of course, one has to see if someone like DeSantis wouldn't do the same thing. But it's odd, isn't it, that the Republican Party as it now is, is essentially the biggest accelerant of extreme leftism in the elite. Yes, but that's, that's very important to emphasize. It, it, it helps the left, but it's a, very, it's a certain segment of the left. It doesn't help the Democratic Party, in my view. It harms the Democratic Party. But it certainly inflames the, le the left in, in the world that we live in. Uh, but what Joe Biden will not, so the one thing he will not do is replace his terrible vice president with someone who could help him win, because that would offend the, <clears throat> the intersectional politics of his party. The one thing he will not do is say that he thinks that little boys and girls should be left alone until they're adults before they decide if they're going to change their sex or not. The one thing he will not do is actually attempt to, to, to shift the immigration question in which he's just allowed a half a million, half a million Venezuelans into the country, allegedly temporarily, but we know permanently, essentially, when all is said and done. So that's my concern, that in fact he's too weak. Well, yes, yeah, so th th that's what, that's that's a perfectly legitimate reading of it. Uh, you, you could also put it slightly differently, which is that uh, the the last thing whoever 
would be the the Democratic candidate next year, whether it's, it, I mean, it's almost certainly going to be Biden, but even if it were not, the, what would, the worst thing to happen would be for the Democratic Party to sort of blow up. Let's talk about Trump for a second, because here, what, as a character, I, he's one, one of these people that I have attempted to see good parts of. I've attempted to see any redeeming character there. Now, he is occasionally funny, sometimes not intending to be, but sometimes intending to be, even though he doesn't seem to laugh himself very much, certainly not anybody else's jokes. I'm just going to challenge you to bring your moral complexity to Trump. What is, how do you, because obviously there is something about this guy that has, that has achieved, first of all, this extraordinary initial election, but then to actually have survived the last three years and to now be essentially the front runner for the next president, as the next president, which he is, I think. That tells you that there must be a more complicated story about this guy than we are allowing ourselves to. What is what is what well, do you I think wonder, about that? I mean, Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>